Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. Hello everybody and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole and you are tuned into our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. And we are going to uh, start off 2023, continue on with our adult reconstruction. And we are on some joints. We are on some knee. And uh, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. Hit the subscribe button if you have not already. And uh, and let's go ahead and get into it. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. There's there's also a lot of uh, interest uh, in these young patients who have arthritis, um, but they don't really want an arthroplasty. They don't really want a knee replacement. What sort of things can you offer the, the younger patients? Yeah, so for those younger patients, you can offer them an osteotomy. Um, and, and, you know, we can talk about the different type. Well, we will talk about it very, very shortly. Um, but again, for these younger patients with arthritis that are young and they're active and they have an isolated compartment disease um, or pathology, an osteotomy may be a option for these patients. And, and speaking of osteotomy, what are some osteotomy options for young patients with medial compartment arthritis and varus alignment? So if they have varus alignment, and just to uh, kind of go back, that means they have an increased adductor moment and more medial compartment pressures. What you are going to re- to do to kind of reverse the varus, uh, shockingly, is you're going to do a valgus-producing high tibial osteotomy, which um, can be done in several uh, different ways. Um, there's a lateral uh, closing wedge uh, osteotomy, a medial opening wedge osteotomy, and a dome osteotomy. Um, Those are the kind of three main types. The uh, most common, uh, at least according to orthobullets, is the lateral closing wedge. Um, The medial opening wedge though, uh, from what I've experienced, because it's an opening wedge technique, you uh, help maintain their limb lengths a little bit better. Sometimes after a closing wedge osteotomy, they'll complain that that leg is a little bit shorter than their other side, and they either have to use uh, custom insoles um, or they just end up dealing with it. But um, then the dome osteotomy is uh, essentially what it is. Uh, so a, a medial and a lateral closing wedge, that's when you just take a true wedge. So it's a triangle of bone out and then you fix the, the correction that way. And then a dome osteotomy uh, is basically where you create a dome and then you're allowed to articulate the distal segment within the proximal segment to correct their varus malalignment. And you, it's a little bit too complex to get into this talk and really to talk about on any OITE test because they don't really test on the Cora or the center of rotation of angulation. Thank God. <laughs> if you're, if you're interested in learning more about the Cora and uh, if limb deformity and Elizarov and all of these other 
uh, sort of deformity corrective surgery techniques are uh, interesting to you. Um, I know that Elizaroff has a great book about it and uh, they do a lot of the stuff, stuff up at uh, HSS and the Paley Institute. So uh, again, all you really need to know is lateral closing wedge, medial opening wedge, and a focal dome osteotomy are those are the three uh, main types. And then uh, the downside to these is because uh, you are trying to correct the alignment, you do change the alignment of the tibia and you typically will see proximal uh, tibia varus because of it. Um, and then, so what are some of the potential risks associated with the lateral closing wedge? Yeah, and you mentioned some of them a little bit earlier, but again, the lateral closing wedge where you're literally taking a wedge of bone out of the lateral side. Um, and if you think about it, you can injure all of the lateral sided knee structures. So you can have an injury to the perineal nerve. You can have an injury to the proximal tib-fib joint. Or the, uh, you can also have a loss of posterior slope as well as patella baja. And patella baja, you can actually see in both medial and lateral closing wedge osteotomy where the patella is a little too low. Um, but again, when you're doing a lateral closing wedge osteotomy, you can uh, get a perineal nerve injury, injury to the proximal tib-fib joint. You can also lose some of your posterior slope as well as patella baja. Now, um, on the other side of things, what are some potential risks associated with medial opening wedge osteotomies? So the uh, medial opening wedge can result in uh, uh, collapse. Um, it can, and basically you're stuck with the same deformity that you had before. Uh, how they have kind of gotten around that is some of the specific implants that are designed for a medial uh, osteotomy of the tibia. They have a metallic part uh, centered on the plate that sticks in between the bones so that you're not relying on uh, autograft or allograft in that area to keep the osteotomy open. Um, you can see uh, non-union uh, just because an opening wedge osteotomy kind of goes against all fracture and bone healing principles. Bone healing likes compression and it does not like a lot of uh, distance like that jump distance for uh, osteocytes. And so if you are opening the space between two bones, asking those bones to now heal relies on autograft and uh, the patient's kind of young uh, status to heal that. Uh, you can also see patella baja with this. And um, uh, one thing I did, uh, I, I misspoke earlier, the, the problem after correction is either too much tibia valgus, but the reason why young patients are in uh, knee varus is mostly because the, the problem is in the proximal tibia. Uh, so if the, if the knee is in varus, it's mostly because of a proximal tibia problem. If the knee is in valgus, it's mostly because, because of a distal femur problem. Yeah. And um, what are, so saying, uh, you have your patient and you're talking to them and, um, basically they say like, well, yeah, you know, doc, but I, I, I like that, that osteotomy that you're offering me. I want to go, I want to go with that, but, um, you evaluate their knee and I mean, it's, it's just extremely loose. What are, what are some of the other contraindications to a 
valgus producing tibial osteotomy yeah one of is what you just said like you know ligamentous laxity or ligamentous instability so say for example they have a, a pretty big varus thrust or when they're walking their knee their tibia um goes into more adduction so they have that varus thrust um so ligamentous instability would be a contraindication for a valgus producing tibial osteotomy a flexion contracture or fixed flexion contracture greater than 15 degrees if they have inflammatory arthritis if they don't have much range of motion or if their range of motion is less than 90 degrees as well as if they have multi-compartmental disease so that'd be kind of the opposite of why we do this we do this for single compartment disease so if they have multi-compartment disease and they also have medial compartment bone loss those are some contraindications uh, to these these tibial osteotomies and for a, a deeper dive into um, high tibial osteotomies um, definitely go and check out the episode with dr seth sherman uh, over at stanford we have an episode with him where he goes a little bit more in depth on these on these different osteotomies to treat knee osteoarthritis now what are some osteotomy options and you mentioned this a little bit earlier because you talked about the problem with varus typically being um various deformity of the knee typically being due to a problem in the in the tibia or the proximal tibia uh, but what are some osteotomy options in patients with lateral compartment osteoarthritis yeah the uh so the uh those with valgus knees they have a distal femur problem and one thing that they are going to test you on we'll probably talk about it later on too but the big issue with a valgus knee is you want to check and make sure that they uh, do not have uh, lateral distal uh, femoral condyle hypoplasia, or meaning that their lateral femoral condyle is smaller than their medial, because when they have that, it poses problems in the future for uh, arthroplasty uh, alignment, and we will get into that later. So. Uh, you're going to do a, what's called a varus producing femoral osteotomy. It's one of the few times where varus is accepted in orthopedics. Um, but it's really just you're, you're correcting a problem that is too valgus and you are making them more mechanically aligned rather than putting them into more varus. Uh, and then um, this, this distal femur valgus is something that you're going to uh, really get caught up on on exams because they will ask you questions about uh, doing a tibial osteotomy on a valgus knee and that is routinely not the answer. Um, I have zero uh, relationships with this person. I do not know them personally, but um, for those of you that want to learn more about these things as well, uh, Dr. Uh, Rosbrook uh, up at HSS, his Instagram is limb lengthening. Um, he has a bunch of patients that have limb deformities, and you'll notice a trend that, that every single patient that comes in with bilateral knee valgus has uh, distal femur plates, and everybody that has bilateral knee varus has proximal tibia plates. So um, it's, it's just a trend that you'll eventually notice as you go through these pages or as you kind of go through training and see this stuff more and more. Um, so you, you talked about the contraindications for a valgus producing tibial osteotomy. What are some of the contraindications for a varus producing femoral osteotomy? 
Yeah, a lot of them are going to be very similar to the opposite. So, you know, anybody that has medial compartment arthritis, you wouldn't want to make it worse by putting them into more various. Anybody that has a flexion contraction greater than 15 degrees, as well as limited range of motion or less than a 90 degree arc of range of motion. Now, you know, we talk about doing these osteotomies and, and at least, you know, trying to buy these patients some time before they need a, a total knee in the future, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20, 25 years down the line. Is survivorship of a total knee arthroplasty affected by prior osteotomies? No, it's not. Uh, total knee arthroplasty still has excellent long-term results, um, even if a patient does have a prior osteotomy. And uh, honestly, it's uh, there's probably an argument that could be had that um, an osteotomy that is used to correct mechanical alignment prior to a total knee is probably more beneficial for a patient than somebody who is using a total knee to correct a bad mechanical alignment in the first place. And so I know that there's people out there that are saying, oh, well, if their arthritis is so bad, you're not going to correct their alignment with an osteotomy first. I understand that. Um, but because you already have the knee in better alignment, with uh, an, an osteotomy, their total knee is probably, it's going to do at least the same, if not even better uh, than, than having a, a bad deformity beforehand. So um, which of the varus producing femoral osteotomies has the least amount of displacement? Yeah, so that's going to be that dome osteotomy. And luckily, they, <laughs> they don't ask us too much about this. I remember just looking at it. I tried to read it like three different articles. I tried to really find a, a video of them doing a dome osteotomy just to conceptualize and understand it more. Uh, but I am glad that they will not ask too, too many questions about a dome osteotomy. But just to note that, again, this is one of those various producing uh, firm osteotomies that does have the least amount of displacement. And there was a, there was a paper uh, that actually just uh, backed up one of the things that you were just talking about, about survivorship and total knee arthroplasty uh, published in JBJS in 2019, uh, uh, titled Total Knee Arthroplasty After High Tibial Osteotomy Results in Excellent Long-Term Survivorship and Clinical Outcomes. So you can check that out. Dr. Uh, uh, Chalmers, uh, Brian Chalmers, uh, uh, was first author on that, on that article. So uh, that was in 2019. Now, those, are my, those are my favorite papers, the ones that uh, tell you <laughs> tell you the results of the paper so you don't even have to read it. Yeah, it's like, uh, uh, you know, I, I like it. Like, you know, we're straight to the point. It's, it's great. Yeah. Um, now, what are some, we talked about, you know, our osteotomies. We talked about uh, our, our arthroscopy for our treatments. But what are some advantages to a unicompartmental uh, neoarthroplasty? Yeah, these are becoming more and more popular. Um, I actually just got certified on a robot for unicompartmental arthroplasty, although I don't really see that being a huge part of my practice once I uh, finished here with fellowship, but who knows, I might uh, find a little niche to do it. But um, essentially, because you're only replacing one part of the joint, uh, typically it's the uh, what would it be? I think typically it's the uh, medial compartment is where most of these are going to be done. Uh, they have fewer early complications. Uh, they tend to have a quicker recovery compared with total knee and an osteotomy. 
because the incision is smaller, uh, they're allowed immediate weight bearing, whereas uh, with a total knee, they're, although they're allowed immediate weight bearing, it's a much more invasive procedure. And with an osteotomy, they're usually not allowed immediate weight bearing and they're off the, off the leg for about six weeks. And so they have a quicker overall recovery with a uni. Um, they have a higher initial uh, success rate, but the, in the long term, uh, total knee kind of still reigns king. And it's really just the thought because you, although you are replacing uh, one part of the joint, and even if that part of the joint is the only one that has arthritis, uh, because they already have an inflamed synovium and they're prone to developing arthritis, they're probably going to develop it throughout the rest of the joint and will need a revision to a total knee. Whereas if you just do a total knee in the first place, then there's no other place that they're really able to develop arthritis. So they, they have better long-term outcomes. And then uh, you're just like the contraindication king uh, here for this discussion. <laughs> uh, what are some of the contraindications for a uni? Uh, very similar ones for our uh, for our osteotomies. Anybody that has tricompartmental tri arthritis, you shouldn't just replace one part of the joint. Um, any knees that are ACL deficient, uh, because uh, you know those are ligamentously unstable, that likely uh, lead to increased wear uh, on that in that pros prosthesis. Uh, anybody that has inflammatory arthritis, you always at least one of the things you think about is worry about their ligamentous. Um, uh, competency as well as their soft tissues. We know from our rheumatoid talk a while back, uh, a lot of the things that go along with rheumatoid arthritis, like our periarticular erosions, the synovitis, and many of many of those things, as well as a flexion contracture greater than fifteen uh, degrees. So, same, a lot of the same things are, are the contraindications. Now, what are some you know, I guess technique principles that should be maintained when you're performing a unicompartmental arthroplasty, just to make sure you try to get the best outcome for these patients that you can. First, you uh, want to avoid overcorrection. Um, basically, what what that means is if you have a medial compartment collapse and you overcorrect that knee and you either put in a humongous poly, or you don't take out enough bone on either side of the joint, what you're doing is you're essentially jacking up like a car jack that side of the joint, and you're putting undue stress on the contralateral side. And so you'll uh, develop lateral compartment arthritis much uh, quicker than you otherwise would if the correction was uh, anatomic. Um, you really aim for an under correction of the mechanical axis by two to three degrees. Again, this is very hard to do without robotics, uh, unless you're very skilled, which I can't imagine there are many, uh, residents that are listening to this <laughs> who are very skilled at unis because it's a very technically, uh, demanding procedure. Yeah. Um, you want to avoid extensive releases because like you said, uh, you, you don't really want a loose knee when you put this in. You, you still want the knee to be very stable. Uh, and then you, you want to have uh, extra caution with the proximal tibia guide pin placement. Um, it's hard to conceptualize until you actually see one. And I've seen a few in clinic come in 
uh, because of other uh, other surgeons have done the uni and they come to us for uh, revision because they did fracture through their pin site. It's really nothing that the operating surgeon prior to did wrong. It's just kind of an unfortunate complication that can happen. So you, you really want to make sure that when you do place that one pin in for your proximal tibia cutting guide, that uh, you're certain that that's where you want to cut. Because if you're putting multiple holes in the medial tibial plateau, and then you tell that patient, yeah, you're allowed to start walking after surgery and they, <laughs> and then they feel great. They will fracture through that because those, those pinholes can be quite large. So, um, you just want to make sure that, uh, it, when you commit to that pin, you, you want to be sure that that's the only pin that you want to place. Um, and then what is the, uh, uh, treatment for a tibia fracture after a uni compartmental? Yeah. So, you know, these patients that come by with that, that stress fracture, again, maybe that they did exactly what you were just saying and they, they put a lot of pins in that proximal tibia and they went out and just walked five miles every day for two weeks and ended up having this stress fracture. You want to, number one, see if the implant is stable or not. Right? If the implant is stable, you can treat this. You can, you can trial non-operative treatment with rest as well as weight bearing restriction, very similar as you would in anybody else that has a stress fracture. But if the implant is unstable, this may require uh, revision, plus or minus open reduction and internal fixation. Uh, if the bone stock is compromised, it may uh, require a conversion to a stemmed total knee arthroplasty as well. So if the implant is unstable, they're going to need a revision uh, arthroplasty with open reduction internal fixation of the fracture. And then again, if the bone is compromised, you will you may possibly convert them to a stemmed total arthroplasty. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Nailed It Ortho.